That is one of the most amazing sounds in all of the world. I mean, not just the natural world, but everywhere in my mind. What you've just been listening to is a very large male orangutan making a long call. That call can stretch out over minutes and can be heard for a couple of kilometers away in the forest. It's an amazing piece of communication by one of the most intelligent apes on Earth. But what this red ape can't communicate is its need for medical help. And that's where my next guest comes in. Medical care to one of the world's most intelligent apes is both science and art, and the unique skill of a few specialized veterinarians. As the rainforests of Borneo and Sumatra have been felled and burned, the number of injured orangutans has increased dramatically, flooding rescue centers and often overwhelming the veterinarian staff and resources. Joining us this time is one of those specialized veterinarians, the British orangutan vet, Nigel Hicks. A decade ago, Nigel decided to leave the predictable world of veterinarian medicine in the UK, and he ventured into the unknowns of wild orangutan care a half a world away on the islands of Borneo and Sumatra. His experiences and the need he and his partner Sarah saw inspired them to launch Ovade, the British charity Orangutan Veterinarian Aid. Ovade provides veterinarian equipment, medicines, and assistance to orangutan rescue groups and centers across Indonesia and Malaysia. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Welcome, Nigel. It's really great to have you with us. It's been a long time. It's, it's great to catch up. We seem to have missed each other each time the, recently that we've traveled to Indonesia. So uh, it's, it's great to catch up this way, at least anyway. We first met, you were uh, working at um, one of the sanctuaries in the Malaysian side of Borneo with orangutans, and you were out there on a platform. And um, that reminded me of something that I read on the Ovid uh, website, which was um, something if plan A doesn't work, there's 25 more letters in the alphabet. And, and I saw you out there working on that platform and it looked like you were kind of making up plan A and B as you were going, as the orangutans were coming and going on the platform. What, what, does, that, what does that mean in your mind that there's 25 other letters in the alphabet? Well, that's a really great starter question, Jerry. Uh, I have to say, I'm 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 sorry that I was um, so superficial that it was obvious I was making everything up as I as I went along. I thought I was I was getting a little better than that, but obviously I'm, I still need to improve. Uh, Nigel Hicks, but, welcome but to Talking Apes. It's it's interesting. I think sort of as as vets we we're trained to work across species and we're trained to think outside the box a little bit, and it really is necessary to do so. When, when all this started back in, in 2009 now, uh, and I was offered the, the position as, a, as an orangutan vet, my first question was actually, you know, have you got the right chap here? Um, you know, am I actually qualified to, to do this job? And I was told by a wildlife vet that I spoke to that, uh, that being a large animal vet, if I was used to turning up on a farm with, with all of my resources in the, in the trunk of my car, as you would call it, uh, and be faced with 
pretty well any case that the, the farmer threw at me and I, I could successfully complete it, then I'd be fine as a, as a wildlife vet because you simply have to think outside the box. You have to think on your feet and you, and you also have to sort of utilise everything that's available to you. And I, and I think perhaps doctors are perhaps a little bit more rigid with their discipline. I don't mean that in any derogatory way, but I think they'll very often sort of easily dismiss a situation as unworkable. So I, I, I often think if you asked a doctor to uh, to perform a caesarean section in, the, in a stable on a dirty farmyard with limited light and one bucket of hot water, he would just say that's impossible and not even attempt it. Um, but vets do it all the time. Uh, and the Indonesian vets are extremely resourceful. These Indonesian guys are dedicated. They're often working with little equipment, poor facilities, sort of outdated medicines. So very often what they would like to treat an animal with their plan A is just not available. Um, and you don't have a lot of time, so you go to plan B. And if plan B doesn't work, then I guess you go to, to plan C. So it's sort of more or less natural. Yeah, do you think it's maybe because um, vets in places like Indonesia, they uh, they grow up not even knowing plan A? Um you know, they, they're already starting at plan C or D. I mean, just because of the circumstances and the place that they are. So what we would think of as, or or you as a vet might think of in, in a place like the UK or the United States as plan A, that's just not even presented as an initial option. Yeah, I think I think that's a, it's a, a really valid point. Um, and very often it is the case. Uh, you know, they're working in some difficult conditions so, you know, whilst we might plan to do a surgery in a certain way, they, this, it's impossible for them. So there's, there's some way down that line already. Uh, and, and all credit to them because they seem to cope with it sort of amazingly well. Um, but I guess that's the, you know, so that's the sort of the, the idea. You know, you, if, if plan A isn't working, don't be phased. You just simply go to, go to the next one. And, and interestingly, when I started working out there, I found it really cathartic and quite satisfying to working from from first principles medicine um, without any reliance sometimes on sort of t- technology. It can be frustrating, but but it's really rewarding when it works because uh, you really feel you've achieved something and you've, you've mastered the ability to move quickly from, from one thing to the next and get the job done. I, I was, I was going to ask you how orangutans were, uh, different from all other great apes, including humans. But uh, it sounds like you you didn't have a lot of primate or especially great ape um, background coming into it when you you started with orangutans. You were working primarily as a a vet with domestic uh, livestock and and dogs and cats and that kind of thing. Or did you have some some prior great ape experience? No, you're you're absolutely right. I have to confess that that. Yeah, I hadn't worked with primates at all before, sort of 2009. And my experience had been, I mean, quite a bit of, of many years, too many years of veterinary experience, I guess, but as you say, with domestic animals and, uh, and and a lot of large animal work as well. Um, but I haven't worked with, with primates before. And it, it sort of phased me at first because I was really sort of concerned that, that I wasn't going to be up to the job or I wasn't sort of capable of, of adapting easily enough. But it's... It's surprising because a lot of the treatments that we we use for great apes can sort of stem from um, from first principle medicine. 
So in other words, the, you know, an orangutan comes in with a, a nasty wound. Well, you're going to treat it in much the same way as a human would be treated or a dog would be treated. Um, so th- there was a rapid learning curve. Um, I always remember when we arrived at that centre in Malaysia first, I was supposed to have a uh, sort of a couple of day handover with the, the vet that was there. And, and I sort of approached it really confidently. I thought, this is great. Uh, have a couple of days handover. I'll sort of get into the swing of things and we'll be fine. Um, and then much to our surprise, uh, once we got there, I think probably within about half an hour of being shown the clinic and the basic principles, the vet just said, well, I'm off now. I'll see you in about three weeks' time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Sarah, my wife, went into complete panic, uh, thinking that we were going to decimate the uh, the, the uh, critically endangered orangutan population of Malaysia. Um, and I was sort of like, well, no, we'll be fine. Uh, we'll just go to plan B or plan C or plan D if we need to. Um, but And it's a question I'm often asked now, actually, by you know, with a lot more experience now, so a lot of sort of veterinary graduates sort of approach us and say, well, you know, what do I need to do to get into wildlife medicine? You know, must I do a master's degree? Must I uh, do a specialist degree before I can even consider it? And and what I actually say to them is, is, no, you know, give it a little bit of time. But what you need is some good sound uh, veterinary medical and surgical experience. And that will stand you in, in good stead. You have to obviously be able to learn the the intricacies of tropical medicine, etc. Um, but a lot of the treatment, you know, will come from first principle medicine. So, so if you're adaptable, then it's it's fine and it and it works quite well. Mm. So, so I will ask my original question then: what, how how is it that orangutans differ from? other great apes and from us? I mean, what what was the first thing that kind of surprised you or kind of caught you um, that you said, okay, this is a little different than anything I've worked with? Okay. I, I, I think, first of all, a lot of people are surprised at the size of the orangutan. Uh, they're often, they're, they're sort of much smaller than, than people imagine. They're bigger than chimps, but smaller than gorillas. And I think people expect a, a bigger animal, a wild Orangutan is a fairly lean, um, but but quite athletic sort of creature. I, I think perhaps the first thing that hits you is the the tremendous muscle power they have and the strength that that orangutan have. And it's not until an orangutan grabs you by the arm for the first time that you suddenly get that realization that that this orangutan has got you by the arm and you're not getting out of it unless that orangutan decides he's going to let you go. Um, so you suddenly are faced with this animal of you know, perhaps even a little smaller than you, but which has about six or seven times the, the strength. Uh, and that can present a real sort of real challenge. You, you do have to be careful. I mean, generally they're, they're sort of gentle creatures, but, you know, they can get angry if you are trying to do something to them that they don't like. So I think probably sort of strength, uh, the fact that they are incredibly uh, incredibly sort of uh, forceful animals if they, if they want to be, and I think the other thing that obviously strikes everybody is that is that sort of level of intelligence uh, that they come with. These are really clever pre- creatures, uh, you know. And I always sort of say, you, know, you, you sort of look into the eyes of an orangutan and you can see the cogs turning there. Um, they they will play tricks on you. Uh, they're fantastic creatures to work with, um, but they are great sort of 
problem solvers. They're intelligent animals. I, I think, as I say, I haven't had a great experience with with a lot of the other apes, but but for me, the orangutan really is a very very sort of clever animal. Um, I've seen them work in pairs together to sort of bend branches to to escape over a wall. I've seen them pick up sticks and use as walking poles to work their way through uh, through um, a moat around an island. Um, and I think that's where perhaps they, they differ from other great great apes. There's, there's the classic sort of phrase, isn't there, you know, where they say that if you give a chimpanzee a screwdriver, uh, he'll just throw it back at you and try and kill you. If you give a gorilla a screwdriver, he'll probably just scratch himself with it. But if you give the orangutan a screwdriver, he'll sit there and he'll just open up his cage and walk away. And I think that sort of sums it up. It's, it's that really sort of clever intelligence and tenacity that they, that they seem to have. Um, so does that become a challenge when you're trying to do the work you're trying to do as a vet? I mean, obviously, if you've got to do some kind of medical procedure on them, you've got to knock them down and, you know, you've got to sedate them. But do, where where does that intelligence, at what point does that become a challenge to you as, as a vet in trying to work with them? Uh, quite quickly, I should say. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, as I say, on the whole, they're gentle creatures, um, but you know, they they will bite, and they are very strong. If uh, so, so certainly, you know, an orangutan of maybe sort of like four, five, six years old is going to become unhandleable in that in that sense of the word. Um, so you you have to dart them um, to to perform any sort of examination and they are really clever i mean i've, I've seen an orangutan um, whip a dart out of its backside after it's just been darted and and throw it with force straight back at the darter so you know so so you almost you need to hide the dart gun if you're going to approach them because they'll remember um and you need to get out of the way as well once you've once you've done it um so so they're very clever. They're very clever at um, not taking medicine. You know, if you talk to any sort of vet who's tried to give an orangutan medicine that it doesn't want, um, then they are really sort of really, really a pain sometimes to, to try and figure out how you're going to get that medicine in. Um, and I think the other thing perhaps that, that is a real sort of challenge, and it's not related necessarily directly to their intelligence, but um, they are masters at, masking signs and symptoms and that's a real challenge for for any vet yeah they i I, it's it's the natural sort of fear flight adrenaline you know stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system i guess but obviously they're they're a wild animal and in the wild um if you exhibit signs of illness or weakness then you're going to be predated and although the orangutan doesn't have that many predators predators it still does um so if an orangutan looks sick, then that orangutan is very sick and you need to do something very sort of quickly. And I think that's something always to bear in mind. I remember when we were working in uh, in Sumatra in 2016, we, we had a big male orangutan brought in uh, by the rescue team and he'd been speared into his spine, leaving a, a, an infected wound in the spine. Uh, he'd broken a couple of fingers. He'd lost one finger. He had a broken rib, and he'd been shot. And that orangutan was still evading capture. He just wasn't going to give up. He was going. We had another one that had been 
that, that looked absolutely normal when it was brought in by the rescue team and when we x-rayed it it had 66 it had been shot 66 times um, but it was showing no real sort of clinical signs of that so that's a real challenge I think to to, to anybody sort of dealing with them um, and as I say they're they are just so sort of very clever because once you perform the procedure, then you know you still have potential problems. And I remember we had a an orangutan that we operated on for um, an ear saculitis. So the orangutan with this, this great big sort of ear sac, which you know, Jerry, which the, the male uses to make the long call. It covers most of the most of the chest, and they sometimes can get infected. And the the only way to to treat them can be to operate and um, actually make a hole in into the through the skin and into that air sac and and to create a fistula so that the hole stays and allows drainage. Uh, we operated on this orangutan and we were actually really just sort of patting each other on the back thinking that our technique was pretty good. Um, but what we'd forgotten was that the orangutan obviously realised it had a hole and it decided it was going to keep its peanuts in this hole, which really didn't give <laughs> surgery a lot of good. Um, so that, that's typical. They'll, they'll come up with these things that you don't think of. Taking stitches out for a pastime, you know, any, any sort of surgery, afterwards they'll try and take stitches out. So that's a challenge for the vet. So we use all sorts of, uh, of, of distraction techniques. I mean, we, we often use buried sutures where we can, but that's not always possible. So, so we try all sorts of things to, to fool them into not picking their wound open. So we'll put false stitches in for example you know so let's say the wound's in the abdomen we'll put a few stitches in the arm so that when the orangutan wakes up it sees those and it starts picking away at those rather than perhaps having a go at the uh, at the surgical incision and uh, and painting fingers and toenails is is uh, a great idea sarah likes that one as well so uh, the, the girls will often um, paint their fingers and toenails with uh, with any sort of uh, any uh, uh, makeup that they've got handy. The gaudier the colour, the better. So that when the orangutan wakes up, it sort of looks at hands and thinks, "My God, what the devil is this on my hands?" and sits there looking at that, and and hopefully avoids opening up your wound. So I mean, it's, it, it sounds quite amusing, but it it is a real challenge. That that is not something I thought we were going to end up talking about is painting <laughs> orangutan toenails and fingernails, um, but no, but but that is I mean they are so amazingly intelligent and you know that that was you know one of my one of the questions that I had for you was yeah my experience with orangutans in both Borneo and Sumatra has been that you you seem to either have these. Uh, rescues that can never go back into the wild or you have these rescues that you're trying to get back into the wild and um ideally it's a rescue that you you patch them up and you get them back into the wild as quickly as possible and they spend the least amount of time in any kind of captive situation um but others um have to spend you know, a prolonged period of time in, in captivity until the wound, either the wounds heal or there's a suitable release site or something. So how do you see those? Do you see those as kind of two different um, challenges? The, the orangutans that have to be decided upon that they can't go back into the wild versus the ones that you're going to try to put back. I mean, do you approach those in any way differently as as a vet in working with the teams there? 
Yeah, I, yes, you would, Jerry. I think. I mean, you know, unfortunately, the unreleasables are perhaps the saddest part of the of the rescue centres that that we see, uh, and those are the orangutan that are not going back to the wild for for various reasons. That can be, you know, due to an injury. Um, it, it can be as a result of being perhaps kept as a pet for far too long and being unable to uh, uh, then adapt to going back to the forest. Uh, it can be because they're suffering from a disease, you know, tuberculosis and, and hepatitis are the two that perhaps we worry about mostly. And certainly, um, you know, unfortunately in orangutan, tuberculosis is extremely difficult to to treat and, and we think is probably almost impossible to, to eradicate. So those animals are unfortunately going to remain as, as unreleasables. Um, and you, yeah, you're quite right, Jerry. Those are, those are sort of the, the saddest ones that, that we see in the centres. But it, I think it does mean that you, you, you can treat them differently. So orangutan that are going to go through the rehab process and are going to be released, really you, you just don't want to habituate. You want them to have as little human contact as possible. I don't think it matters too much in young babies um, that have sort of lost their mother. You know, as we know, orangutans would be with their mother until they're sort of six or seven years old. And the first couple of years, they literally are being carried around by their mum. So those young orangutans that come in the centre, even if those we think are you know, potential for release, I think I don't see it. It's too much of a problem if they get a lot of love and care and attention from from the nurses. Um, but then as they start to work through the rehab process, they need to be habituated uh, less and less and less. So certainly as, as vets, any procedures that we would do, we try and minimise. They have to have a quarantine period of three months when they come into the centre. Um, but after that, you know, we would try and perform as, uh, as many of the veterinary procedures that have to be done uh, as quickly as possible to get them back in the rehab process. Um, and as we've sort of mentioned, th that can present challenges. The ones that are not going back to the wild need a different type of attention, I think. You know, so, so certainly in terms of providing them with enrichment and so on, that's much more of a complicated process. Um, but also, if they're not going to go back to the wild, then habituation is not really so much of a problem. So I see nothing wrong with an animal which unfortunately can't be released back to the wild getting more attention uh, and and making its life better and its welfare better. Um, and it's certainly with some, some of the centres now are sort of starting to use some of the techniques that are used in, um, in zoos worldwide um, to enable them to be treated much easier. So you can have things like, you know, presenting themselves for examination, presenting themselves for injection, for blood draws and so on, without the need necessarily to to have to the trauma of darting and so on. Um, and and some of these sort of zookeepers are, are very good at this sort of training and, and and achieve sort of good results. And they're passing that on to, to some of these centres now so that they're able to do that. Um, so that's, I think, much less traumatic for these poor animals that are unfortunately kept in, in cages most of the time uh, and having to stay in the centres for a long time. So, so certainly from a, from a veterinary point of view, we would approach those slightly differently. The, the ones that are going back for release, they just need to get into the rehab process and, and hopefully move back towards that release as soon as possible. I, I was curious, you mentioned 
tuberculosis TB. Um, is it is there a specific kind of TB for orangutans, or is it is it uh, the same um, TB that you and I would fall victim to? No, it's 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 the same. It's the same TB. Uh, there's not been a lot of research, obviously, done on wild orangutan, but we suspect that in fact TB is is not that prevalent in wild orangutan, if at all. Um, so the TB that we tend to see is is probably simply as a result of orangutan coming into close contact with with humans, and TB is an endemic in uh, in Indonesia. Um, it's it's notoriously difficult to to diagnose successfully and accurately uh, and probably even more difficult to to treat. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we have the three-month quarantine when animals come into the centre because the, the most satisfactory way of, of diagnosing tuberculosis um, is really from a, a sputum sample. Uh, it's pretty difficult to get an orangutan to, uh, to spit into a little pot uh, on demand. So uh, obviously they have to be sedated um, and then we would take a sample um, from down in the in the trachea from towards the lungs, and that's sent off to a lab. But that takes three months uh, of culturing before you you could get a result. Uh, there are other tests, you know, we we X-ray as well. We do some superficial sort of skin tests, uh, and you can do a PCR test as well um, in the laboratory. But the most accurate test is uh, is the is the culture test. Um, so these these animals are having to wait three months in quarantine for that test. And then if they come positive, um, they, they need a lengthy protracted treatment, sometimes over a number of years, and they need to be isolated away from, from all the rest of the animals in the centre. So logistically, they present a problem. Um, and it, it's, as I say, it's one of the worst diseases that, that we always sort of fear can, can get in because of the risk of spreading to the other orangutan and, and even, you know, obviously, to, to, to keepers as well. Yeah, I, I, I mean that's something that that has been on my mind a lot uh, in working uh, in in Borneo and Sumatra is the spread of disease. It seems like we know um, we I, th I think we know a lot more about and we don't know a lot, but we know a lot more about the impact on chimpanzees and and gorillas. I think um, just because of the the longevity in which people have been working with those two animals in Africa. But it seems from what I've heard talking to, to folks running centers, talking to other vets, that the, what we know about disease in orangutans is, is much more limited, and especially when it comes to wild orangutans, which brings brings up a couple of questions I guess I wanted to ask you about. One is COVID, and we'll, we'll touch on that in just a second. But, you know... Over the last, uh, especially the last five or six years, the fires um, that have ravaged, it seems like, um, Borneo and Sumatra off and on, um, these really horrendous fires. And I was there in 2015 when, you know, it just devastated much of Borneo. Um, and there were there were thousands of humans who were suffering from respiratory uh, infections and um you know, inhalation of this toxic mix of smoke, which had methanes and ozones and all kinds of things in it. And I asked a number of people about what, what was the impact on orangutans, and, and basically nobody knew. And 
I mean, it's a really obviously a difficult thing to do, but have you seen in the work that you've been doing there, have you seen any problems, growing problems with respiratory disease and, you know, impact from things like these fires? Yeah, I, I, I would say yes, Jerry. Uh, and as you say, I mean, those annual fires are certainly horrendous. You know, we do witness them firsthand. We were there in, in 2015 as well when they were particularly bad. In, in fact, Sarah, my wife, she was there for a more protracted period than me, and she suffered residual respiratory problems for, for several months. Uh, and, yeah, you're right. Those those fires are frightening. I remember we were in Katapang, and uh, we could see the fires approaching the centre. You could hear the crackle of the flames, and you could see whole trees just erupting up into flames and smoke everywhere, smoke everywhere. You know, you couldn't – we didn't see the sun for about three months, and that's not really an exaggeration. Um, so – uh, and the impact on the human population was sort of very evident quite quickly. Surprisingly, the impact on the orangutan at the centre was nowhere near as severe as we had expected. Uh, we, you know, we were all wearing masks. We we were expecting the orangutan to be coming into the clinic sort of one after another, and and actually we didn't really see that. We did see some respiratory problems, but almost less perhaps than. That was being seen in the human population. So I don't know whether the orangutan in some way uh, seemed to be able to cope with it, which is really surprising to me because respiratory problems in orangutan are, are the worst. Um, you know, they are a real sort of, they're a real problem. Um, so you would expect that the, the fires would, you know, if they're causing problems in humans, they're going to cause horrendous problems in the orangutan. But having said that, uh, I know certainly that the boss centre at Nairamentang um, has has looked at it sort of very carefully, and, and again, I think they also agreed that they have some respiratory problems in the in the acute fires, but they actually started recording an increase in respiratory symptoms maybe twelve months or longer after the severest fires. Um, which is quite worrying because if if the signs were not evident until the following year, well then perhaps it indicates that the fires precipitate perhaps a more chronic than an acute syndrome in the orangutan. Uh, this is really anecdotal. You know, I'm not, I'm not talking from a, a true uh, sort of like scientific research basis, but this is certainly my impression. And it worries me because it could mean in that case that, that wild orangutans obviously are left with long-term problems. And as you say, Jerry, there's very little research which has been able to be done on, on wild orangutan. Um, but certainly the boss centre at Naira Mentang um, were very convinced that, that they were having some sort of chronic problems in, in their orangutans. So uh, I think we, you know, and with the ongoing fires sort of year after year, unfortunately, we may not have seen the end of the problems uh, for, for orangutan in that respect. Yeah, I just, it, it is something that, <coughs> excuse me, it, it's something that, I guess it was on my mind just because I know that with in the case of chimps and gorillas in places uh, like the Virungas and Uganda, that respiratory disease has been one of the one of the few killers um, when they've lost groups there. And there's just been so little done around orangutans. I just you wonder how how many orangutans ended up dying. But it's interesting that you should mentioned it being a more long-term or chronic thing. Um, and it, it sounds like a fascinating PhD for somebody, if you could figure out how to do it. I mean, obviously, 
just seeing orangutans in the wild is a challenge, but uh, to, yeah, to try it, to track them and then get some sense of their respiratory condition would be even even more a challenge. Yeah, that's true. But it, it would make a, a great project if it was if it was feasible. So uh, it, it's out there if somebody wants to have a go. Yeah. Well, speaking of diseases that uh, that like TB that can jump from human to uh, orangutan, what what's going on? I the Delta variant is running kind of crazy in Indonesia right now. And it's, I know that um, the latest uh, statistics that I had seen um, this being August of 2021, it's showing that the Delta variant is, is running rampant and Indonesia is second only to India in terms of um, infections in that part of the world. What, what's going on with orangutan? I mean, has anybody had a chance to look at that at all? I mean, I we know that COVID is in some of the centers. Um, we've got news the other day that actually somebody in one of the research centers had died of COVID, and I know they're taking every precaution under the under the sun to try to you know prevent the spread there. But what's what's your thoughts on on COVID, the variants, and orangutans? It is really worrying. Uh, I mean, COVID's affected every one of our lives and, and there's, there has been a huge impact, certainly, as you say, in, in Sumatra just recently. Uh, they seem to be having uh, having a worse time than, than, than we've had. Uh, I think I saw the other day that there were uh, more cases and more deaths in Indonesia. They were sort of unfortunately topping the, the charts at the moment. So, um, I mean, luckily at the moment, there has been no report of, of um, SARS-CoV-2 in orangutans. Uh, and I think that's a credit to to the, the staff of all the centres out there. Um, as soon as the pandemic sort of hit, uh, the centres sort of made impact assessments and, and quickly put sort of existing disaster relief plans into operation. So the centres were effectively sort of closed down to everybody except essential workers uh, and they made the, the sensible decision of splitting keepers and vets into separate teams so that if uh, if any member of the team became positive, that team could be withdrawn and replaced with a, with a healthy team. This meant long hours for the vets and produced some headaches for management, but um, it, it does seem to be effective. So they, they, they've done a great job. Uh, I think a major complication is that there are no specific tests for SARS-CoV in orangutan. Um, the human sort of lateral flow antigen tests are of, as we know, are of sort of variable efficiency in humans and, and they're completely unproven in orangutan. Um, PCR remains probably the most accurate test, but not all centres you know, have access to this or, or they've not been able to get samples tested because of the pressure on the labs from um, from, from human testing, naturally enough. Um, so it's, it, is a, it, is of, it is of great concern um we know that orangutan are susceptible um we know that they have the same uh, sort of ace2 receptors that uh, that we humans have uh, which enables the the virus to uh, to attack the cells so we we can only assume that that if covid did enter it could actually sort of decimate the population i know Sabine singleton has been really sort of worried uh, in sumatra with their lower number of, of orangutans um so it, it has caused great concern. Um, the centres have done sort of a really good job under sort of difficult circumstances. Um, but it, it, 
it has met all sorts of sorts of problems there. A lot of the centres reported trouble obtaining sort of PPE at the start of the pandemic. They they just couldn't get it, or it was extremely expensive. Some of them were having problems with um, food supplies for the orangutan, especially when there were local lockdowns. Um, so it, it it has been sort of really sort of complicated, but the teams have done a really good job. Um, and I know for a fact, so speaking to, to some of the vets, that, that uh, some of the teams have you know, from time to time tested positive for, for COVID within the centres. And that's presented the vets with a bit of a problem because, you know, how much contact should you have with the orangutan in your centre if you've got COVID floating around in the in, the, in your keepers as well? So um, it's been a really tricky time, but so far they've, they've been lucky um, and the the measures are in place and are remaining in place. There's no sign at the moment of any of the centres relaxing those. So I, I, I guess we have to keep our fingers crossed. But um, I think you'd have to assume that with orangutans having that sort of sensitive respiratory system being susceptible to, to any sort of human respiratory problem, um, COVID could be a major, major problem if it, if it did get into the centres. So, so far, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Yeah, I, not to complicate it, but just coming off of the last thing we were talking about, which was the 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 impact of the fires and the, and the chronic nature of what that could be doing to your lungs. I mean, one of the things that we do know about COVID is it if you have underlying conditions, it you are more susceptible to the impacts of it, um, and so that obviously spins in my head. What about these orangutans that are out there that may have some ongoing respiratory problem from from one situation, the fires, and 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 then if something like a COVID should get into any of the wild populations, do you just amplify the the problem? I mean, questions none of us know the answer to, obviously, but it's it's it, it is it's a good point. You know, we we know very little about um, about orangutan's immunity to, to COVID. You know, we're just assuming that they are susceptible because of those sort of ACE2 receptors. Um, and we perhaps have to assume that that the symptoms and the syndrome would be similar to, to the scenario in humans. Uh, I mean, interestingly, uh, there's sort of um, last year, San Diego Zoo, uh, San Diego Wildlife uh, Park had a problem in their gorillas, uh, where they tested positive for for sort of COVID, most of them um, showed the same sort of gradation, I think, of symptoms as as we've seen in humans. It was only a very small uh, number, uh, maybe just like half a dozen, I think. But I think the younger ones seemed uh, to be able to cope with the disease better. The older ones showed slightly more severe sort of symptoms. They all recovered, um, and they were sort of fine. But I, I agree with you, Jerry. It, it does sort of concern me. You know, we, we don't even know whether long COVID is a possibility if, um, you know, if the, if the um, orangutans did sort of suffer from sort of the COVID infection. Uh, it, it's sort of guesswork. Uh, nobody really knows, but we have to keep our fingers crossed. I guess disease is an issue for, for me. I mean, I'm fascinated by disease in general. I always have been. And uh, but I, I think it's uh, when it comes to great apes and primates, especially it, we when we look at the threats to great apes in the wild, 
it's really easy to, to point your finger at the obvious things, the things you, you can see. Palm oil, you know, there's giant plantations. They're wiping out a rainforest. Um, you know, it's a mining or a dam in, in some place, uh, whether it's Africa or it's in Southeast Asia. But disease is that as... Um, uh, one one health person who you might know, Billy Karish, who works for uh, One uh, Eco Health. One of the things he said to me a long time ago was, he said, "You know, disease is sort of the, especially zoonotic diseases, are sort of the silent killer that we just don't know about." And he said, with populations becoming more compacted um, because losing wild habitat, they're they're pushed into denser and denser situations or just smaller numbers and isolated numbers like you're getting with some of the primates. All it takes is a disease to sweep through there and wipe out that whole population or, you know, a, a large number of, of those animals. And the same thing's happening with orangutans in Borneo and Sumatra. I mean, they're in such isolated you know, patches. I mean, just look at the Tapanuli. You know, it was only discovered a couple of years ago that, you know, it's uh, its own species. And yet it was immediately put on, it was the most endangered great ape instantly with only about what, 600 or something of them. So it wouldn't take much of a disease to sweep through and wipe out 600 animals or at least the, you know, the, the majority of the viable population there. So, um, Disease has, it just seems to be the sort of silent killer out there that I, I, I'm worried about when it comes to apes. Yeah, I think I, I, I would agree with you. I think and that's probably a good expression, actually, the, the, the silent killer. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of EcoHealth. We worked with EcoHealth back in um, 2012 in Malaysia. Um, and EcoHealth were actually sampling wildlife um, in the centre and around the centre. Um, in an effort to try and predict when the next pandemic uh, might might when it might be and where it might stem from, uh, slightly ironic now. Um, but they, I, I remember them saying to me then, you know, we we probably have identified and recognised some, you know, a, a few thousand viruses at the moment, and there are probably more than a million out there which we we don't know about at the moment and which have the potential to cause problems. So, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, unfortunately, sort of, you know, the, the whole business of deforestation um, and human orangutan conflict, uh, you know, the ongoing sort of problem, it is a, is a real sort of threat. The more that we encroach into sort of those animals' territories, the more we put in roads, we sort of open it up to poaching, we put, opened up to the wildlife trade, um, and we expose ourselves um, to, to possible infection, but, but also we expose those critically endangered animals, and sometimes in small numbers, you're right, in small sort of pockets of, of forest left, um, they're going to be really sort of susceptible to, to disease. Um, it could easily sort of wipe out the Tapanuli orangutan, as you say. You know, they're split into sort of three, three groups at the moment, only sort of one of which is possibly sort of viable um, if something is done. So I think silent killer is actually a sort of a good description. We don't, we don't know what's out there. And I think people often tend to forget that. They just seem to sort of, I think a lot of the public would just think, well, we know about diseases and we know what there is out there. Um, but in fact, we don't. So the potential for problems is is worryingly there, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. Um, 
before I mean, we've been chatting for a while now, but and and I haven't asked you at all about Ovid, and so it seems. And uh, before we let you go, I wanted I, I do want to dig into Ovid and what Ovid is about. So maybe you're since you're the co-founder, you're the best person to to tell us what Ovid is. So I'll I'll step out of the way and let you describe what Ovid is and what it's trying to do. Uh, I, I get a, a, a promotional slot for Ovid. That's, that's just really good. Thank yeah, you, Yeah, there you go. I think sort of when we sort of spoke before this sort of podcast, you sort of, uh, in your question, it was like, why Ovid? Um, and I sort of picked up, up on that because it's, it's funnily enough, it's exactly the question that Sarah and I were were asked by the CEO of, uh, of one of the largest orangutan charities at, at our very outset. And he just asked if we had too much time on our hands or money to waste to be setting up another charity, um, which I think was probably sort of slightly tongue in cheek. But in fact, it was neither of, of those. You know, neither of us ever intended to, to run a charity. Um, we loved what we were doing. We were sort of helping the orangutan. We just simply saw... A, a desperate need that we felt we could fulfill. Uh, and we were extremely driven to to try and do something to help. From a, from a personal point of view, uh, I guess I just wasn't ready for retirement. So so for me, it was a little bit, I felt a little bit like uh, paying back. Um, and, and certainly I now tell everybody that, that without any doubt, working with orangutan for the last 12 years has, has probably given me more satisfaction than my previous 30-odd years as a vet. Um, but as you know, Jerry, all the centres in Indonesia are NGOs with no government funding, so the budget's always stretched, and facilities like cages and staff and feed, etc., always tend to take priority over the over the veterinary budget. So the the catalyst for setting up Ove came back in 2013 after we'd been working with the orangutan for for sort of four or five years. Uh, and it happened when we met a young Indonesian vet called Imam, and, and Sarah and I had been working in Malaysia in a government-run centre, where it's, although we lack some equipment, supplies for the clinic were, were not really a problem. And we were occasionally sent down into Indonesia by the charity that we were working for. Uh, and we were shocked and amazed to, to see the difference of the, the threat to the orangutan in Indonesia from, from Malaysia, and also to find how lacking in veterinary equipment and medicine some of the, the rescue teams teams were so so it was it was brought home to us quite vividly in 2013 when we met imam and he was a, a young vet in charge of two mobile rescue teams in kalimantan uh, and we were visiting and we asked him what equipment he had and if he could show us his clinic and we were both completely stunned because he, he sort of wryly smiled at us and just produced a small day pack, backpack with a few sundry items in it. Uh, so he was a guy who was rescuing critically endangered orangutan, often seriously injured, um, and, um, and with little more than a first aid kit. Um, to, to, to his wage was being paid by another charity, but he had no equipment. He was like a mechanic with no tools. Um, so he had knowledge, but but what practically could he do? So it was a, it was a critical eye-opener for us, and we immediately committed to try and rectify the situation. We felt that we were in a unique position. We had some veterinary and nursing training. We we had experience of working in an orangutan centre. So we started by raising some money amongst friends to, to take a few items of equipment out, but we soon realised that we needed to make things a bit more transparent. Uh, and, and that's really how in 2014 Ove was born. So 
we felt that by establishing the only specifically veterinary focused charity, we we could have an impact. And, and the aim was simple. You know, it, we would be a small niche charity. We would try and fulfil the shortfalls of equipment, medicines uh, of as many as the vet teams as we could. They'd tell us what they needed urgently, and we would try and aim to supply. Um, but we also felt it essential that we should be able to react quickly and decisively when necessary, when things were needed, and 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 wanted to keep overheads minimal. So, so keeping the charity sort of small and voluntary run has has, has actually been a conscious conscious decision, and I think actually perhaps as help with what success we've had certainly you know our supporters are able to see us do a fundraise and then you know hopefully a month or two later they can see that equipment being used out in indonesia and i think we've 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 had a significant impact i think since 2014 we've supplied about a quarter of a million pounds worth of equipment um but we've also changed slightly we've we've expanded our scope to to try and facilitate some mentoring and some training um, and I guess sort of now at this stage, having gained an in-depth understanding of what's needed by working on the ground for sort of over seven years in more than four rescue centres, we're we're often sort of quite selective and pragmatic in what we do supply. There's there's no point in installing expensive, sensitive equipment in a in a poor environment or not providing adequate maintenance or training. So so we try and make our decisions carefully, and we have a network of suppliers and expert trainers now that that very generously assist us so we're able to provide some in-situ training at the centers when we supply equipment um, and we have managed to do some monitoring Uh, and i think sort of this ongoing training is a really important factor for for the indonesian vets so in 2019 we we actually launched a scholarship to try and bring some of these orangutan vets from indonesia back to the uk um, for an exchange of ideas and um, some training and upskilling. Um, so the launch that year was for, for two candidates, Arga and Pandu, and, and they really enjoyed it and it seemed really worthwhile and we got great feedback. Um, but unfortunately, um, the, the pandemic saw us having to postpone the, the scholarship. So uh, we were going to bring four candidates in 2020, 2021, but Unfortunately, we've had to put that on hold. But we are currently in conversation with uh, sort of Liverpool University and Chester Zoo here in the UK to to try and resume it next year. So, so sort of as I say, orangutan veterinary aid sort of sprang really out of out of what we saw as a as a as a necessity um, uh, to to try and help help the vet teams. And hopefully, somewhere along the line, we've we've managed to to achieve that. Well, there was a couple. It, no, I think it's amazing what you're doing, and it was it was long needed. Obviously, there was in you know when it came to mountain gorillas, there was the gorilla doctors, and they've been around for a long time, and they've made a huge difference in the survival of that that group of of great apes. But there was, it seems, some some real gaps in when it came. To when I first started uh, traveling to Borneo and filming or- orangutans, there was certainly some gaps in the vet- uh, veterinarian support that was there. But one of the things that I, I, I'm ex- really excited that you're doing is the scholarships, because w- one of the things that I consistently bump into when in the field is the fact that these young vets, it's a, it's a huge, I, I don't think people realize what a huge leap it is for vets in some of these countries because 
they're taking care of wildlife isn't seen as a priority. Uh, you know, if, if, if you're going to become a vet, you take care of domestic livestock or, you know, or someone's pets. That's where the money is. Um, so I've had more than one young vet in a center that just said, you know, he really had to kind of go against family wishes, go against friends who were just like, why are you doing this? The, the idea that you would actually be interested in saving an orangutan's life versus making money, you know, taking you know, working for some big livestock organization or something. And it, it seems like with scholarship programs, especially that's one of those, one of those ways in which you can sort of value added to the experience. And the fact if they're getting to come to the UK or wherever to get, you know, um, other experiences, when they go back home, that sort of adds value to who they are as a person and what they're doing as a career. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think it's a really important factor. I, th I think probably it, it needs a combination of sort of in situ training um, and perhaps things like the scholarship scheme, bringing sort of vets across either to the America or to to, to the UK. Uh, you're you're absolutely right, Jerry. It, it always surprises me. Um, if you if, certainly here in the UK, anyway, if you say that you're a wildlife vet. Um, people are firstly amazed and um, surprised uh, and very envious because it's sort of like the ultimate job. It's fantastic. Uh, in Indonesia, it's pretty well the opposite. Um, you know, if you manage to qualify as a, as a vet, then you do have the potential to earn money. Uh, if you go to Jakarta or Singapore or somewhere and you, you do cats and dogs. Um, so for your family, it's a it's a real bonus. So for these guys to, to turn around and say, actually, I'm going to turn my back on that. Uh, I'm just going to uh, go and work in a really remote rescue center miles away from anywhere uh, for a minimal wage. Um, and it's going to be difficult sort of conditions, but this is what I want to do. That takes a lot of courage. So I think anything that we can do to, to help these guys. Uh, and, and I think what also tends to happen is that a lot of these sort of young Indonesian vets make that decision, decision when they qualify, naturally enough. They have to decide which direction they're going to go in. Um, so they will enter the centres with, with very little practical veterinary experience, um, you know, in terms of, sort of surgery and medicine. They have to sort of learn on the hoof as they go. Um, so it's really sort of difficult for them. And the opportunities to, to advance are sort of quite limited. So the so the availability to you know of, of some in situ training or education or certainly the ability to to perhaps travel outside the country and and converse with with other sort of vets um, learn new techniques um, is I think is vital in maintaining their interest and I think it's vital in sort of maintaining the whole process of of orangutan welfare and so on because these guys can can go back. Um, and turn up at the centre and say, hey, guys, you know, Joe, I've just seen them using this sort of technique. I wonder if we could sort of give that a try. Um, so hopefully it's capacity, it's capacity building um, and it's encouraging for these vets. They have something to aim for. They can see that they can actually make progress where perhaps they thought they couldn't. Um, they can acquire new skills. Uh, and then that hopefully also um, keeps the keeps them working in the in the centers and not sort of abandoning their life and, and, and going back. So 
I, I think it is a you know it is a really important part of of what we do. We we were sort of really encouraged with the response that we we got from from sort of applicants for the scholarship, and certainly as I say from Argo and Pandu that came on our first scholarship. Um, they both took back ideas. One of the one of the things that I really sort of liked was um, Argo, who was from the Boss Foundation in uh, in Naramenteng, had, had desperately wanted to learn about some dentistry. Uh, and we managed to find him a placement here in the UK with a specialist wildlife dentist. Um, uh, and he admitted that he, he'd learned a lot, but I guess it was about a month after he got back to Indonesia and he just messaged me and he said, you know, we had an orangutan today that we were going to go for a release. And when we were doing the health check, I looked at its teeth and said, we shouldn't be releasing this orangutan. That tooth needs to be extracted. And he was so proud because he'd actually managed to extract this tooth, which actually was a canine. So all credit to him because it's one of the most difficult teeth to extract. Um, and I was absolutely delighted because he was a guy saying, well, you know, we would have probably released that orangutan if I hadn't come on the scholarship, if I hadn't learned that sort of dentistry and gone back and said, look, we need to look carefully at this and this is what we could do. Um, it wouldn't have been done. So there was a real positive there. Um, and I was really sort of heartened by that and felt, well, actually, you know, perhaps we're, we're perhaps doing some good here, both for, for the vets themselves and perhaps for, for longer term welfare. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I don't think that, that's another one of those things I don't think most people would think about is orangutan dentistry. You know, it's like, <laughs> but you know, if if their teeth are infected, um, or especially if they had a broken canine or something, and their teeth are infected and they end up not being able to eat um, or eat effectively to keep their nutrition levels up, um, it could have devastating impact. You know, we. Um, We've been we've been chatting for nearly an hour, and I, there's just a couple more questions I wanted to ask you. Um, one is as as a vet now that's been working for near you know over a decade, I guess, in that part of the world. If there was if there was one ongoing situation you could change that would, what would that be? I mean, what what would you like? I mean, you can't, maybe you can't change everything, but from a veterinary standpoint, what would you like to see change that would really make a difference in the the lives and the survival of great apes there? Well, I, I guess we, we have to be really practical, you know, rather tongue in cheek. I'm sure I would sort of speak for all the rescue vets when I say that what we would all like is actually to be made redundant. You know, we'd like the need to rescue, translate, translate orangutan just to end. Uh, and for orangutan to live safely and peacefully in their own environment, uh, and no need for us, um, all be out of a job. That would be fantastic. But obviously, the reality is that the current situation for orangutan is not going to alter in the immediate future. So, so vets are going to continue to, to face challenges. So, you know, we obviously need to work at the whole sort of conservation issue, of, you know, for these orangutan. We need to find a better way of uh, of solving or trying to solve the problem uh, you know people have been working hard for the last 20 years and yet in that last 20 years you see figures like 80 percent of orangutan habitat having been lost so you could argue that 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 as conservationists we haven't been doing that good a job um but that's that's sort of the bigger picture that that certainly needs to change and but as i say that's not going to happen sort of quickly for, for me as a vet 
harping back to that sort of last sort of uh, little bit of conversation we had, I guess it would be for me for for these rescue vets to be recognised for what they do, but also to to have have ongoing support. You know, without these rescue, without these vets working in these rescue centres, orangutan are going to die. There's no, you know, no doubt about it. The keepers are really good, but there's only so much that they can do. Um, so without the vets, it's it's an impossible task. You're just not going to be able to put animals um, healthily through a rehabilitation process. So, so for me, I think providing support for the vets is achievable, um, and. I, I think it's, it can be done. So uh, providing opportunities for them to learn, mentoring, providing sort of facilities and so on that, that uh, so they're able to use them, I think is important. And I think the other thing which has sort of come to light more sort of recently, I, I think, is that these vets work in challenging conditions every day. Um, and there's currently a, a worldwide discussion about the mental health of veterinary surgeons. Uh, we have one of the highest rates of suicide of of all professions, um, and this was emphasised at the recent Orangutan Veterinary Advisory Group OVAG conference, which we sort of attended online, um, when many of the Indonesian and Malaysian vets expressed just how much they were struggling with their jobs, uh, with the remoteness, being away from their families, with the pandemic, and with their mental health, particularly during this this last year. So I think. There is something that can be done. Practically, we can find ways of supporting these young vets. Um, it seems to be a, a real concern for them. And, and I think it's achievable. We are sort of changing that. The, as I say, the Orangutan Veterinary Advisory Group um, are an Indonesian-driven group, which is providing um, a huge amount of, of support and input and education for these vets and, and encouraging them, encouraging them to talk amongst each, each other um, and, to, and to move forward. And for me as a vet, I think that perhaps will bring about the biggest, the biggest change. If these vets are happy and, and uh, in, in their work and are not having to struggle so much, they're going to do a much better job. Welfare of the orangutan is going to improve. So it, it's, it's a slightly sort of um, strange answer, perhaps, Jerry, because it's, it's nothing I think can be done for the orangutan that we're not already trying to do. That maybe that we need to change the way we're doing it, uh, and that's perhaps the topic of a, a complete another conversation between ourselves. You know, maybe we need to to look at, you know, do we rescue and uh, and translocate, or do we preserve the forest? It's that sort of big debate, and and I always consider myself to be a welfareist, so I'm going to be looking for the, the individuals, um, and perhaps I'm a conservationist second. You know, I still like to look at the bigger picture, but for me, sort of welfare sort of comes first. And, and, and I think to improve the welfare of the orangutan, we need to have a really good sort of solid veterinary team sort of working to help them. Um, so that's something that can be achieved, um, and hopefully we're, we're moving some way towards that. Uh, so how, um, so in helping you achieve that, how can people, uh, help with Ovid? Well, uh, they, they can always give us some money. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that, there's that. That's, yes, a, that's, we certainly do that's that. being sort of very flippant, so, but, but, but no, it, it, no, but to, 
To find out more, they can go to ovaid.org, yeah, right? If, if they go to V-A-I-D. Yeah, www.ovaid.org. So, so the organization is ranked on veterinary aid, but we're often known as, as OVAID, www.ovaid.org. They'll find all sorts of information there about the work that we do, um, illustrations of, of what we've been able to achieve, um, and also sort of ways that, that they can help us. But, uh, but one thing I would say, and we always say that when we, when we talk to people, is spreading the word is, is, is as important as anything. You know, spread the, the fact that you've learned that something about orangutan um, and that they are critically endangered and that we need to be working to, to support them. Um, and word of mouth does a huge amount. Um, obviously, you know, if people can support us financially or find some way to do that, that's, that's a huge help. But, but very often just spreading the word and making people aware of, of things is, 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 a, is a big part of it. Well, Nigel, thank you so much for being on Talking Apes today. I mean, helping spread the word about what's going on with. I love being able to talk to people with different perspectives on the conservation of great apes. Um, it's one thing to talk, as you said, you're looking at the individual, uh, your conservation a second. You know, we've had conservationists on talking about the, the situation with, with uh, orangutan. So it's nice to have somebody looking at the individual specifically um, and, and giving some perspective on that. So um, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Really appreciate it. It's it's been a real pleasure, Jerry, and uh, I think I, I I get the feeling we could talk for another hour, but you know that's just going to bore people. So we, we'll we'll save some more for another time. <laughs> we'll save some more, and hopefully we can have that hour somewhere in uh, in Borneo in the not too distant future. That would be uh, that would be really brilliant. So thank you, uh, thank you for being on, and I, again, I just really appreciate you taking the time and, and sort of walking us through some of the stuff that you go through. I think people uh, are going to find it really fascinating, especially um, if there's some young vets out there or somebody's listening and they know someone who's interested in in wildlife veterinarian medicine. It's this is a it's an interesting time with diseases, zoonotic diseases, and the challenges that that all of these species are facing. It's a it's an interesting time to become a vet, I think. It is. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great job. I don't, I don't even consider it a job. I consider it sort of more of a vocation. I, I, think I, I, I feel lucky that I've uh, been able to spend my life, life doing a, a job in inverted commas that, that hasn't really seemed like a job. And certainly working with orangutan doesn't seem to be too much of a hardship well, for me. Well, thank you. And those aren't inverted commas. Those are uh, those are full on, full on. I thank you. I really appreciate it. So take care and we'll talk very soon. OK, thank you very much, Jerry. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure. OK. Oh, actually, before we go, I want what one question I want to ask you is what's next? What's next for you? Uh, that's a that's a that's a tricky one. I, I think probably we're concentrating more now on as i say sort of providing sort of training and um, and backup for for the vets you know our core our core function obviously has always been to to provide the equipment and, um, and medicines that are necessary but but we've sort of swung a little bit as, as we've been able to provide a lot of the essential equipment obviously it needs to be maintained but 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 a lot of it has been provided uh, and that will be ongoing but we're probably moving more towards hopefully being able to provide 
backup and support to, to the vets. And that's sort of been illustrated recently. You know, we've, we've had to change our ideas because of COVID and the way that we work. We've not been able to travel out to Indonesia uh, and take the donations that we, we normally do. We normally travel with about 150 kilos of donations and, um, and, are, and are probably sort of flagged up in red as we approach the, uh, the security scanners at Indonesian airports. I think we probably have got a reputation already, uh, but obviously we've not been able to do that. So we've, we're concentrating more perhaps on, on mentoring and training. Uh, and interestingly, we've, we've, we, in partnership with, uh, with, with Boss Schweiz, Boss Switzerland, we've, we've just managed to fund a three-month training program, for example, at Samboja Lestari in the, at the Boss Centre there where we've been able to uh, place an experienced vet to undertake, I think it was like more than 20 surgeries in orangutan and over 30 surgeries in the sun bears, um, dentals and ophthalmic surgeries, etc., um, and provide in-situ training. Um, and it was fascinating seeing what sort of happened. You know, the initial sort of first sort of week, a lot of the vet team were very reticent to admit that they didn't know things and were sort of very weary. And then as they um, as they became sort of happy and comfortable with, with Joost, who was, who was the vet who was um, um, doing the training, they suddenly all sort of blossomed. They all sort of wanted to have practically have a go. They were sort of eager to do things. Uh, and within a couple of weeks, they were extracting teeth and, and doing a lot of the surgeries themselves. Um, so that was sort of really heartening and, and made us think, well, actually, this is a real practical way of, of, of helping the situation there. Um, and it may be that that's what we need to be concentrating, concentrating on. It was a three month project. We aren't going to be able to do that all the time. Uh, but if we could develop more of those, um, I think we would be making perhaps a a slightly different, but but as much of an impact as, as just simply providing uh, medicines and equipment. So uh, I, I I would like to think that we we can progress from here um, and and do more of that. Yeah, no, no, that's interesting. Yeah, I I was just that was, I was curious as to what's what's next. It's kind of uh, it's a question that we've started asking guests just to. You know, see what's on the horizon out there for everybody, and and this, and you're right. I think the um, situation with, especially this pandemic, has made people kind of reassess how they have an impact. It certainly made us reassess here at Globio. I mean, we're working with our program partners and and trying to figure out how we can have a greater impact when we can't get there because we just, in some cases. You know, we're just shut off from getting on a plane and going there and doing the filming or whatever else we're doing. So yeah, ex exactly. I, I I guess it's a it's a positive outcome of the of the pandemic, perhaps. You know, that we we've all had to sort of reassess what we're doing, and and you know, we, we've sort of found that we've still been able to supply some some things. You know, we've managed to supply the PCR lab at um, Ketapang with with essentials even during the pandemic it's been difficult but we found ways around it um but but we've had to look at sort of alternatives and and as i say like this sort of training program has has turned up to be a real sort of positive and and something that that will certainly continue i i certainly i'm certainly not giving up yet there's there's uh, there's life in the old dog yet i think 
My special thanks to Nigel Hicks for sharing his time and his experiences on what it's like to be one of those specialized veterinarians who takes care of wild orangutans in Borneo and Sumatra. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people, and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the very forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website, of course, at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. And I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark. It takes a lot of work putting these podcasts together, and she does an amazing job. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation at Globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis. For all of us at Talking Apes, thanks for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.